This is an ABC podcast. Norman, over the past few years, I've gotten to speak to you almost every day, and now I'm only really speaking to you once a week. I miss you. What have you been up to this week? I miss you too, Tegan. I miss you too, yeah. I've just been sitting here in my little hidey hole, not going to the gym, not going out very far, just sitting, working away. Yep, sitting, waiting for this Omicron storm to blow over, which I'm sure it will do very soon, very quickly, right? Right? (laughs) Mm, Well, maybe not. If you go back over the last week, it's not been a great week. The... um, Case numbers have moved around a lot because PCR testing wasn't being done. We're now starting to register rapid antigen tests. Well, that's if you can get one. Like, that's if you can even get your hand, hands on a rapid antigen test. I mean, the numbers still seem very high, like scarily high, but I'm suspecting it's much, much less than what's actually out there in terms of true case numbers. That's right. And the problem with the lack of access, well, there are many problems with the lack of access to rapid antigen tests, but one is cynicism. People are just saying, well, I'm just not going to bother getting getting tested. But we were saying last week on CoronaCast that maybe we were underestimating by a factor of five and that was conservative. People are starting to say maybe it's a factor of 10. If it's a factor of five, 100,000 cases the other day in New South Wales, albeit some of those were retrospectively registered. Um, We're talking about massive numbers of people, so massive that we are probably starting to reach the peak here, if we haven't already, in terms of the, the case numbers. But we don't know that for sure because we're all over the shop in terms of knowing the actual case numbers. Hospitalizations keep on rising. Deaths have been rising over the last week. Last week on CoronaCast, we said, you know, we noted the change in policy over the last two years from flattening the curve to zero spread. And now it's riding the wave, which is really another word, another phrase for letting it rip, albeit with some restrictions. And the letting it rip does mean that people will die. And in the first 12, 13 days, 14 days of uh, this year, we've had 100 odd deaths. And the whole of last year, we had 600. So that just gives you an idea of the unprecedented numbers of daily deaths that we're getting at the moment. And nobody said what an acceptable number of deaths actually are. Yeah, it's so it's truly sad, especially for the, the loved ones of those people. Why is having visibility on case numbers important if we do have the... It is easier to tell how many people are in hospital and how many people have died than it is to tell how many people are infected. Why do we need to know that first number? This becomes a bit of an academic discussion between you and I because the genie is out of the bottle, we're not doing tests, we actually don't know. But in an ideal world, you would know what's coming down the pike. You would say to the hospital system, well, very high levels of cases you can expect uh, in a week or two, the hospitalizations to go up and we can expect deaths to go up as well. We're actually seeing the top of this now. We know it's going to be tough for you over the next two or three weeks, but it's going to get easier. You, You can't It's very hard to plan forward when you don't know how many cases are. So whilst the key number is probably hospitalizations, the the case numbers tell you the pressure on the system and the pressure on the system is simply enormous wherever you look, whether it's delivery drivers off work, businesses not able to open, not because of restrictions from the government's but because they simply haven't got staff there to work. And the changing face of isolation and the contact rules. So it's, it is a mess at the moment. And we're trying post hoc to get some sort of control over it. Coming back to the idea of 
flattening the curve because I'm hearing people sort of people are understanding the messaging to be that well it seems to be mild for most people and that you're going to get it this sort of a sense of like you're going to get it you're going to get exposed to it so people are like well okay I'll do it on my own terms I'm going to get it anyway what does it matter when I get it the speed of the increase matters because that puts pressure on the system and the economy, particularly when we don't have many public health measures in place. And when you don't have many public health measures in place, what you see is what you've got now, which is major damage to the economy, which we actually did not see in these dimensions with lockdowns. Not that we're advocating a lockdown, but when you've got clear public health measures in place, people know how to behave and what to do. I'll give you an example. On Talkback the other day, I got a question from somebody about what they should do. Should they go here? Should they go there? What, what, what to do? And this was somebody who cared and wanted to do the right thing. But that just shows you how random it is. So once somebody phones in wanting to do the right thing, other people are saying, well, stuff this. I'm just going to let it rip and I'll spread it around. What, what does it matter? But you, like you said before, if the genie is out of the bottle, can you go back? Can we go back to test, trace, isolate, quarantine when we've got bazillions of cases a day happening? We probably can't at the moment, and we would have to actually rely on uh, behaviour which is imposed by public health orders. Now, some of that behaviour is there, which is about masks, about mandating masks inside. We could talk about mandating boosters so that you only get access to certain venues when you've actually had the boosters, because there is some protection, even though you do get breakthroughs after boosters, there is some protection against infection after a booster. And there are other measures as well in terms of public gatherings and, you know, and high-risk venues, which have not been fully controlled. So the, there are things that you could do just to slow it down so that pressure on aged care, pressure on hospitals, pressure on the ability of the system to respond, and also pressure on the system to actually deliver regular health care. I mean, here's a story, an example of health care which falls apart with serious consequences so somebody I know who has got the BRCA gene and so in other words, that's oh, the, the breast, breast cancer, cancer gene yeah. and had finished her childbearing years and was planning to have a double mastectomy, was not admitted for her, for her double mastectomy because of COVID's pressure on the system and now has developed breast cancer. Oh. So those are things that happen when you've got a healthcare system under stress. That's really sobering, and I suspect that's not anywhere close to the end of that particular trend. But, Norman, you did mention a few things before that I wanted to pick up on because people have been asking us about them. One is masks. I've read news stories with experts saying that cloth masks are basically useless and that people should be using something similar to an N95 mask. Can you help us make sense of this? Like, we've been told to wear masks, we've been wearing them, and now um, we're hearing um, this idea that perhaps they're, they're basically doing nothing at all. Well, research into cloth masks showing, you know, if you've got enough layers there, they are pretty good at reducing the aerosol that, that, that emerges from your mouth and nose. They were never as good as surgical masks and never as good as N95 masks. And now with an increasing level of contagiousness, remember, this was, these original studies were done to the Wuhan virus and we've gone up in contagiousness as we will continue to do, by the way, uh, with future variants. So the increased contagiousness means that if you've got more aerosol escaping from a, from a cloth mask, which you always did have, it matters more now. And so you should move at a minimum to a surgical mask. Now, the thing that's not probably, probably been tied down 
is that if you're wearing an N95 that has not been fit tested, and which is a, 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 not a necessarily an easy process for you to do at home, if it's not been properly fit tested, there's no guarantee that this is an awful lot more effective or significantly more effective than wearing a surgical mask. And in fact, there have been some studies to that effect. So it probably does give you a bit more, bit more protection, but if it's not fit tested, it's probably only a bit rather than a lot, whereas it's a lot when you're working in a hospital and you've probably fit tested it. I mean, just a tip if you want to try seeing whether or not you're properly fit tested and you've got an N95 mask, is one, one technique they use is spray some perfume near the mask and if you can smell it, you've actually got a leak. Break it down for me. If I'm going to the supermarket to do my grocery shopping, should I be digging out an N95 equivalent mask or is my cloth mask going to do for that? And do I save that higher quality mask for a higher risk setting, like if I was visiting someone who was elderly? I think the message now is ditch the cloth masks, wear a minimum of a surgical mask. And if you've got a 95 N95 mask, wear it. It probably does give you a bit more protection, even if it's not fit tested, but you could get maximum protection if it's got a good seal on it. But it's not easy to get a good seal. And then a third question is about third doses, whether people are hearing that Omicron has this vaccine or this immunity escape, whether it's worth going about getting your third dose. So the answer is 100% yes, for a couple of reasons. One is that these are really three-dose vaccines. So to feel fully immunised, you've got to have three doses. It's not a booster. It's actually the third dose you were always meant to have. So that's, that's the main reason. If you want deep longer-lasting immunity, and that deep immunity is what we spoke about last week, which involves these T-cells and allows those T-cells to reactivate their memory and attack infected cells themselves. That sort of deep immunity comes from the, you know, the second and third doses of the, of the vaccine. The other reason is that you do get some extra protection against infection itself from the booster. There's some evidence of that with Omicron. Yes, it does wane with time, which is why the Israelis have gone to a fourth dose, but that's controversial. And it's just about having the third dose you were always meant to have at its basis. I mean, heaps of Australians have had it now. What if you've had the virus? Does that count as a third dose? It doesn't necessarily count as a third dose. It's probably a pretty good stimulation of the immunity. Um, Professor Peter Doherty, Nobel Prize winner, was talking about this and how he thinks the, that this viral-induced immunity may give you pretty good T-cell response moving forward. But I think essentially Atagi and others are saying that you should go ahead and get your third dose after your symptoms have disappeared, just to be sure. So for people who are infected, does, are we still doing genome sequencing? Will people find out what variant they got? No, we've overwhelmed the ability of the sequencing system uh, to deal with this. And, but, and that's a really major issue. I was speaking to Professor Eddie Holmes the other day, and he's worried that we, we lose the ability to systematically survey the community as to what genomes are circulating. So in a crisis situation like this, where we're not PCR testing everybody, where we are, um, we've closed down a lot of testing centres, we are probably sequencing a, a lot of the people, if not all of the people who are actually coming into hospital. He's worried that around the world we're going to lose a systematic ability. In fact, he believes that we don't really have a systematic network of genome sequencing so that we can detect the next variant as quickly as possible when it emerges, and also for future pandemics. So he's worried about a lack of infrastructure for global genome testing, not just in Australia. 
So we're talking about Eddie Holmes, the evolutionary biologist from the University of Sydney, one of the leading brains when it comes to COVID and virology in general. And can we talk a little bit more about this, the chat that you had with Eddie about the virus itself and what we know about Omicron, the variant, that we didn't know even a week ago? So there's this virulence story. The virulence story is that um, if you look at the UK data, Overall, and looking at the whole population, vaccinated and unvaccinated together, it's got about a third of the risk of um, hospitalisation compared to Delta. When you look apples for apples, unvaccinated people who've not been exposed to the virus, it's maybe between 20 and 50% less virulent than Delta because it almost certainly doesn't infect the lungs as, as efficiently as Delta does. But that gives kind of the wrong sense of Omicron, where you think it's a harmless virus. But there's increasing evidence coming out, according to uh, Eddie Holmes, that it's not much different from the virulence of the Wuhan virus, the original virus. And in fact, it might even be more virulent. The Wuhan virus was pretty bad. Like the reason we've discovered that it was there at all was because people were coming down with pneumonia and dying. Yeah. And all we've, and all we, and well, that's what we've got now in Australia, in the unvaccinated population. Remember, we're vaccinated. So we're, a lot of the population is, is well protected against severe disease. But when you look at the unvaccinated population, they are getting sick and they are dying. So it's just the proportion of people that are coming through to hospital that's down. And when you look at what happens to people when they're unvaccinated and haven't had the infection before, it's a pretty bad disease. So vaccination is mitigating the severity of disease that people are getting? Is it mitigating the spread of it? Do we know that? So that's what's that's why we've got this huge surge because previous vaccination has not well protected us against particularly two doses of what should be a three-dose regime do not protect well against infection. They protect well against severe disease. The boosters may actually improve that in protection against infection to some extent and for a while. There are two other things that Eddie Holmes was talking about which I think are a bit surprising for a lot of people, and some of them kind of surprised me. One is to do with the next variant. So he does not believe, and he's the expert, what seems to be that politicians believe, which is this is the end. Let it rip, uh, we'll all get the immune, and it's all going to be fine, and this is the end of the pandemic. Well, he, he does not believe that. He believes that there are more variants to come. And what he reminds us is that Omicron is not an evolution from Delta. And in fact, when you look at previous variants, there's not a sequence here where one variant leads to another. So that if you like, there's a build from Alpha through to Beta through to Delta. That's not what's happening. So what you're saying is the family tree of the virus isn't like Wuhan's the great-great-grandfather and then they all descend directly from Alpha to Beta to Gamma to Delta to Omicron. Well, they all go back to Wuhan. But the Wuhan is spread around the world and you've got low vaccinated populations where new virus, new versions of the virus are popping up who uh, and are popping up with no relationship or very little relationship to the, the version, the variant that's gone before. So Omicron has popped up as a very new variant with very different mutations and with extensive mutations, and it's not a build from Delta. So what he's saying is, particularly with low vaccination rates around the world, is that the next variant will not be a variant of micro, almost certainly not be a variant of Omicron. Um, it's going to be more uh, immune evasive. It's going to be more contagious, and it's going to be different. 
And that means that if you've been exposed to Omicron, you are not necessarily going to be immune to infection from the next variant. And that also goes to virulence. So what he's saying is you can be pretty sure the next variant is going to be more immune evasive because it has to be to spread. It's going to be more contagious, which goes along with that to some extent. But virulence is an independent factor, which is, which is a bit random. So he's saying, essentially, there's no guarantee that the next one's going to be less virulent. It could be for more virulent. So you said something along these lines last week as well. And my overwhelming response to that is like, oh, my gosh, Norman, give me some good news. Like when when can we exhale? Like what what's the takeaway message from this other than just like be scared there's more variants coming? Like what's the action that he's saying that we need to take? The action we need to take is immunise at high speed low-income countries, low- and middle-income countries. Even if these variants become immune-evasive? Yes, because they still, you have to assume that they're still going to protect to some extent to severe disease. You've got to reduce circulating virus, and vaccination is the way to do that. And you've just got to, as an act of faith, you've just got to get vaccines out there and reduce circulating virus in low-income countries. But there is another important element here, which you're hearing more and more about, and again, it's the belief of politicians, which is that it's going to go endemic. Oh, yes. That's everyone's favourite buzzword at the moment. And when it's endemic, we can all relax. People who know what they're talking about say this is such a misunderstanding of the word endemic. Eddie Holmes, when he talks about the word endemic, says, look, and all endemic means is that you've got an infection. So when the pandemic started, it started in China and then blew up around the world and spread around the world. And then as that, as that started to peak, that, that Wuhan version, then you've got the alpha coming and you've got the beta coming and the gamma, the delta and so on, is that when you've got an endemic infection, it's essentially popping up somewhere in the world somewhere. It's always around. It never disappears. And, and in fact, he believes, that according to that definition, COVID-19 is probably already endemic. Because what endemic does not mean is that it's harmless, that it somehow becomes a harmless virus, a harmless infection. Smallpox was endemic for thousands of years and never changed from being a deadly virus that killed children. It was immunization and vaccination, it was vaccination that changed the course of smallpox. Malaria is endemic in many parts of the world and kills young kids, kills other people, you know, kills adults as well, but mostly young people. It's not a harmless parasite, yet it's endemic because it's in large numbers of countries and doesn't go away. Influenza is endemic because it's always always there somewhere, but appears in epidemics every year, seasonal flu. It's basically an epidemic in each of the countries according to season. Endemicity does not mean harmlessness and does not mean we can relax. So much as I'd love to give all our coronacasters great news, it means that we can't relax vigilance. Who would want to relax vigilance when we've seen what happens with Omicron? That early December, New South Wales let it rip and paying the price of that. And people have died as a result. So what's the management strategy for a virus that's so disruptive if it's endemic? Well, the strategy is, as people have been saying now for several months before Omicron came about, is the basis is very high vaccination rates and keeping in place some fundamental 
transmission control, which is about mask wearing, uh, mandated mask wearing, and also being careful in places where you could get high transmission and being able to actually put in public health orders to control that if it's getting out of control. Because what the economic devastation you're seeing now is just the rapid rise um, which has gone beyond the planning that state and federal governments have done, despite the warnings they've had from the modelers, including the Doherty Institute. So, Norman, I intend to live a very long life. Am I going to be wearing an N95 mask until the day I die? Um, I don't know is the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> you know, people, Great. people in um, you know. You look very fetching in an N95 one, would have to say. <laughs> well, I look very fetching, I think. Um, no, I think that um, people in Asia have, in many Asian countries, have been wearing masks outside for a long, long time. Um, they've got used to it. Maybe that's what we need to get used to, too. Cool. Well, I guess I'd better go out and buy some N95 masks then, Norman. You better, I think. Yep. And if you find any rapid antigen tests, I want some. Oh, no, I'm hoarding them. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I'm definitely not. Don't don't uh, knock my door down. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's CoronaCast. Yes, we're weekly still for the next little while. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. See you then. <laughs>